You're listening to the Wealthy Future Lawyer Squad podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Klein. I've created a signature coaching program for law students to show you how to build confidence, design your dream life, create wealth, and thrive in law school and beyond. I am here to show you how to work on both your money and your mind so you too can become a wealthy future lawyer. Let's get started, squad. Welcome back to the Wealthy Future Lawyer Squad podcast. I am your host, Lauren Klein, and I am so excited to be back on the podcast mic with my guest today, the fabulous Angela Vorpal. I have known Angela for over three years now. We connected, I think it was right when like 2020, the spring of 2020, I was just creating the law school blueprint for her. Angela already had an amazing program for law students up and running. We're going to dive into that today. I think today's episode is going to provide an absolute ton of value to all the law students out there. You are going to get so many practical tips from an expert. Uh, Let me just give you the bio because the bio itself is just going to really give you a little insight to how amazing this episode is going to be. So Angela Vorpal is a strategy coach for new law students and for new lawyers. Both, you know, very easygoing, simple times in our lives, right? Like no stress, nothing, nothing going on there. Prior to becoming a coach, Angela graduated in the top 1% of her law school class. No big deal. We got a smarty pants over here, Angela. She clerked for a federal judge, which is so amazing. And she worked as a big law associate in New York City. So when I hear all of that, I hear like the absolute creme de la creme of a resume of a law student right there. 10 years out of law school and amazed by the fact that how to get good 1L grades and how to be a rock star first year associate still felt like a mystery, which is just so wild just as it had for Angela and for myself when I first started out. Angela decided to pour all of that expertise that she used to get those amazing accolades into teaching new law students how to strategically get good, amazing, fantastic 1L grades to start a career on their own terms that is so aligned with this podcast and everything we stand for, and also how to teach new lawyers how to harness their secret sauce. I love that to become rock stars at their law firm, on their loss, you know, their new lawyer journey. So with all that being said, I think you can tell today is going to be an absolutely amazing episode. So Angela, welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Lauren. I'm pumped for this conversation. I know that we have connected several times over the years, and I am just so excited to see that you've launched this podcast, and I know it's giving amazing value to the law students and lawyers out there. Yes, it's so needed. Both of the things that we're doing are so, so, so needed in the law school and the new lawyer community, so I'm really excited to chat. I think the last time that we were really working together was when you had me in your summit. When was that? Was that 2021? I want to say I have to go back and check. I think it was 2021 or 2022. 
I, one of the years recently, because I was going back through all of the wonderful speakers that we had and just that amazing experience. And it made me want to do it again. And so (laughs) TBD, if you get another (laughs) invite in your inbox anytime soon, because that was such an incredible bringing together of experts and people in the field that really, really want to support this community. Because as you said, there's such a need here and there's so many unknowns when you're starting out on your legal journey. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I remember there were people who were experts on networking. There were people, you know, experts on outlining and getting good grades. That's obviously you. There were so many amazing, amazing people on there. And I myself actually went back and watched everything, even though I am not, I would, I'm not even remotely close to a new lawyer anymore, which is so crazy to to even think about or a law student, obviously. But I went back and I watched everything because it was just, it was so, so good. So I would love to do that again with you if that opportunity were to arise. And I want to add a couple of things to your bio because maybe people who don't know, I'm sure a lot of people already know you, but you are an amazing YouTuber And I think we're going to dive into it, but a little sneak peek. I think that's how everything that you're doing now, how, you know, how it all came to be the law school master plan, your super successful YouTube channel. You're really active on social media. You provide a ton of value. So we're going to, we're going to dive in at the end of the episode into all of Angela's social media. Definitely go follow her because you will get so much value as you go through, you know, your law school journey. I promise you, promise you. So definitely do that. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Angela. How did you start the law school master plan? How did you start this new avenue for new lawyers? I want to hear the whole story going back to how did you graduate at the top 1% of your class? Like, how did you do that? Yeah. So taking it all the way back to law school, it's so funny when I hear that number because it is mathematically accurate, but that's not how I felt at all Mm. heading into law school or even physically being in law school. And honestly, what I attribute that success to was this very strategic roadmap of how to actually use my time and energy to set myself up for the grades that I wanted. Because when I started law school, I was a first gen law student. So I didn't know anything. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how the process was going to go. I didn't know how powerful 1.0 grades were. I didn't, I didn't know law firm names. I didn't know legal practice areas, nothing. And so I think for a lot of us, when we first start out, there's sort of, yes, this naivete, but also this belief that law school is going to be college 2.0. And everything that we've done up to this point, we can do the same thing and expect the same results. And I think there's this really sort of terrifying moment in that first week of law school when you realize that this is an entirely different ball game and an entirely different experience with different rules, many of which are not communicated to you. And so I think just the massive amount of work and the expectations and what feels like very high stakes really come together to create this perfect storm of anxiety and fear and uncertainty And so I definitely experienced that as well. And kind of fast forwarding all the way to today, that was the piece where I realized I wanted to to step in and serve the law school community in that way, because I remember how terrifying those first steps were and and starting that process. And then also, also the not knowing, I think that was one of the biggest pieces too, which is we don't know what we don't know. And so there's these gaps in knowledge that a lot of people are not communicating Mm 
And then you start and you feel utterly lost and you feel like you are going to fail and everything that you've worked so hard for up to that point is going to be for nothing. And so that was sort of my experience in law school. And as I kind of relate back to it over the years, I realized that it wasn't magic. Like these grades, it's not because I'm a genius. It's not because I'm smarter than everybody else. It was really, really strategic what I was doing and how I was doing it. And that's what I was intending to recreate with law school master plan in this program is getting really tangible about the steps that it takes to set yourself up for the grades that you want, because it's not that it's not that law students are not capable. It's that we're not given the resources and the tools to be as capable as we truly are because everybody who continues on to law school is smart and hardworking. They're overachievers. They want to succeed. Um, they want to show up and give everything that they have. And there's not really a way to channel that energy and that focus in a way that, that gives you the results that you want. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And so that's, sort of the, the bringing of that, that, that those tangible steps, those strategic steps to what you are already bringing to the table, right? Your mental horsepower and your work ethic and your motivation to be able to, to really translate that into results that you're excited about. Yeah. I think that is, it's, it's such a good look, especially for those of, you know, the listeners who are one L's right now, I think it's going to be very validating for them to hear from you that it's not unusual to really feel like you don't know what's going on when you're a 1L. That's so common. And I don't know, in my experience, maybe not, maybe all law schools are not like this, but mine, I feel like it was very much like, like dangling a carrot, like, oh, we're not going to fully tell you how to succeed. We're going to kind of keep it hidden from you. And you, maybe if you have a lawyer in your family, or maybe if you've somehow found this book before, maybe if you got lucky to fall into your program before they went to law school, then they'll have an idea of what's going on. But it's, it's, it's just such a like, I don't know, it's like hidden from people. And then also, like you were saying, Angela, that you go into a room where you before when you were in university in your life, you were probably one of the smartest people in the room, or maybe one of the hardest working people in the room, whatever it is that got you to where you are, you're in law school, you've gotten to that echelon of education and you've put in the hard work, but now you're surrounded by everyone else who's probably in the same boat. And that can, I mean, that threw me for a loop personally, because I was like, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not the smartest person in this room by far. And I have no idea what I'm doing. So it was very scary and, and very discouraging and disheartening. Cause I just felt like there was no way I was going to be able to succeed. I, I feel like I, I felt like I had no tools to succeed. Yeah. And I have a lot of theories about this because I've thought about this so much over the years. Yeah, I'm curious. But I want to hear this because I'm, yeah, I'm like so, so the, the, yeah, the, so the thing that makes law school inherently competitive is the curve, right? It's the way that we're graded. And so when you walk in, yes, we're surrounded by like other smart people, hard workers, uh, overachievers, but there's also now this shift in the paradigm where we can't all quote unquote succeed. We can't all be at the top of the class because of the way that law school is graded. And so now you've basically pit people who inherently have these characteristics, these perfectionist characteristics or these overachieving characteristics against one another in a zero sum game. And so that creates 
not only the, the competitive atmosphere, but the anxiety and the tension and the pressure and the fear and the stress, coupled with the fact that so many of the most competitive jobs out of law school make initial cuts based on 1L grades. And so now you've just added fuel to the fire and created this pressure cooker where everyone is competing also for a prize that feels very big um, and, and, and very much a zero-sum game. And on top of that, the other thing that I've sort of theorized over the years is why don't law schools teach how to get good grades? Why don't they include that in an extremely, extremely detailed oriented and, and tangible way? And my theory around it is because law schools can't, aren't actually incentivized to do that because they can't actually define success based on grades because they are grading on a curve, which means if they define success based on grades, then only 10% of their class or 25% of their class or 33% of their class or whatever you define as the top of the class can, can reach that level. Mm -hmm. And so they actually are incentivized to define success in another way. And that could be passing the bar, that could be getting any job out of law school, but it has to be something other than, than this inherent zero-sum game that they've created. And so there will be certain trainings I'll hear students of mine say, you know, during orientation, or sometimes there's like, the, like a one-hour skills-based course, and they kind of scratch the surface. But I, I honestly think that they are disincentivized for going all the way down the rabbit hole, or even critically thinking about what all the way down the rabbit hole is. Like, what is it step by step, piece by piece that the most successful students do over and over? Because even if they were to teach that to everybody and it was incredibly clear and there was no hiding the ball and professors were very transparent about what they wanted on final exams, all that would do is make the curve even tighter. So now they still can only give out five A's and they can still only give out 10 A minuses, but now the the pieces and the points that are separating each person are, are just that much, much tinier and much harder to distinguish. And so I think not only why law schools as an institution are disincentivized from teaching these things or even thinking about these things, honestly, in a critical way, but also professors are disincentivized from being straightforward with their students about what they want, because if they're straightforward and they're very clear and they give you past exams and model answers and they walk you through exactly what they want, all they've done for themselves is create more work, create more work to make a distinction True. between the, 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 the final exam answers that they're seeing. I still think it is 100% the responsibility to be transparent, but again, because that directive is not given to them and they're disincentivized from doing it, I'll hear professors tell students that they are hiding the ball on purpose. They'll be, some of them, some of them act as though they don't. Some of them are very clear about the fact that they do. And that is such a disservice, I think, especially to people to, to all of us, but like you said, un unless you have stumbled across a resource like one of our programs or somebody in your family has, has recently gone through this or you have a mentor that happens to be very, very insightful when it comes to these strategy pieces. And, and so I think the system itself is broken in that sense because as long as that, as long as the way the grading and the way that hiring is done law schools don't really have a reason to change what they're doing. Yeah. I, all of that is so, so true. And then I think you add even more fuel to the fire by creating this hyper competitive environment where everyone is kind of doing like a poker face and pretending 
like they know what's going on. So it makes everyone else feel like, oh my gosh, so-and-so knows. I don't know, which creates even more anxiety, more fear, decreases your confidence, which all of that is so detrimental to you being successful, to you feeling motivated, to you showing up every day, raising your hand in class, going to the professor during office hours, even knowing that you can do that, you know, all of, all of that. And then I think what also happens, and this ties in so, so well to your, your new program for lawyer, new lawyers is this, it's almost like this elitist mentality where you are only quote unquote successful. If you get into one of these big law firm jobs, you know, where it's like, Oh, you, where are you going to summer? Where are you, you know, clerking this summer? What are you doing this summer? And it just creates this, environment that is so toxic because not everyone wants to go down that road. Not everyone necessarily will be able to go down that road, but that doesn't mean that they won't have successful law careers, successful careers, even in other industries, happy lives. And so it's almost like if you don't get into this big law firm, you have not succeeded, which is bananas and absolutely crazy. And a lot of the times you can take a path like I took. I started at a big four accounting firm, went to a boutique law firm, never anticipated going to big law. And then through my networking and just really busting my butt for a couple of years at a boutique firm, learning the ropes about tax and trust and estates and making a name for myself, I got to the big law firm. So it's like there's there's all these different avenues and there's so many ways to be successful and happy without necessarily fitting this prototype. You know, so I think all of that, it just creates this this negative, toxic environment that it's not even reality when you think about it at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think I mean, I think law school absolutely creates that all or nothing environment yeah. where, yeah, you've either, quote unquote, succeeded or you haven't. And again, I think that. It's so interesting, and this happens both in the law school industry and also the legal industry, of everybody knows that there's a problem. They Everybody loves to recite the statistics of how that how the, the group of lawyers generally, as compared to the general public, are more anxious, more stressed, more depressed, have more um, issues of substance abuse. And, and yet, I don't actually see major shifts happening around around that. And I think law school and the legal industry in general are so, are, it, it, it's a traditionally sort of old school environment, right? We've done the same thing the same way for so long that I think it makes it very, very difficult for anybody to, to sort of lean into the innovative or the new or the testing something different, um, like you might see in other industries. And so, and so when we are in an environment that is inherently hierarchical because that that's what you have created yep. with the curve and the way that law school is graded and also hierarchical in the sense of the legal industry because we put as you said like so much emphasis on the prestige um and and like literally categorizing law firms in echelons to the point where you are now evalu evaluating your own self-worth based on these very extrinsic metrics, which is 100% what happened to me, and I'm sure to some extent happens to all of us. And then you have to do the work after you get out of those environments of deconstructing that so that you can give yourself permission to 
do different things in life. Like you said, to go and pursue different career paths or go and try things or be curious. And, and I think that that's so hard for us to do because it's been hardwired in us for so long that there is a, that there is a hierarchy, that there is this ladder, that there is a good, better, best. And we should always strive for that top rung. And that top rung is very well defined and it doesn't leave any room for flexibility or, or change or, or curiosity. Yeah. And I mean, you and I both got to that quote unquote top rung. Like we got to, as an associate in big law, like the next step is partner. Like that's, that's the goal. Right. And we are both now doing different things. And so that to me is an indication, yes, not to say that that path is not good or is not the right fit for many people, but you don't have to go down that road and stick with that road to find success and joy in your career. So that's, I feel like that should be very, hopefully inspirational to those who are listening. Like definitely if big law is your goal, go for it, do the thing and see if it works for you. And if it doesn't, that is just fine. That is totally okay. I got I got up there and I looked around and I'm like, I don't know that anyone's really happy up here. So I think I'm gonna switch gears now and start my own law firm. And it's been it's been a wild ride. It's been a lot of fun. It's been scary. It's been awesome, but it reinvigorated my law career. And it also gave me space to do really cool things like this, like sit here with you right now, not worrying that I'm getting an email from a partner who's, you know, <laughs> yelling at me via email. So, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. Everything you described, it's the full human experience. It's yeah. actually experiencing life in all of the different ways, not just in this one very concrete, tiny box that I think we've been messaged to believe that that our career has to be. Yeah, and we're we're human beings first, law students, second, third, fourth, whatever, lawyers after that. Like we're all just here having a human experience and there's so many different ways to do that. Okay. So I all, all the questions I'm going to ask you just tie in so nicely to this conversation, but before I do that, I want to read this quote from your Instagram because I thought this was just so eye-opening and when I talk to people about what I do, that I do mindset and success coaching work with law students, they kind of look at me like, huh, what does that mean? I don't understand what that is. And I think what you say here is so, so on point because let me just read it and then I'll, then I'll, I want to comment on it. You said on Instagram, the real reason law students fail to achieve the grades they want is not because they are incapable. It's because they do not let themselves see how capable they actually are. And then you go on to talk about how, you know, a lot of people think they're not that smart or they don't have what it takes or maybe being a lawyer isn't for them at all. And then you go, no, you don't have the right study systems in place and you don't believe in yourself. And when you combine those things together, it's magic. And it's so fascinating because your work is very like, here are the steps that you should take. And, you know, you, I know you tailor it based on learning styles and all of that, but I love that you combine the practical steps with the mindset piece, because if we don't believe in ourselves, if we don't feel worthy or capable, we're going to tell ourselves stories and then we're going to take action and make decisions based on that. And so I, I just thought that was I thought that was really, really cool. 
So I think that leads really, really, really nicely into my first question. So I ask these questions of all my guests, and it's so fun to hear the different responses. So I'm going to start with with the, the first question I always ask. How have your views towards money and, and mindset, you know, changed from law school to now? And what was the biggest shift? So I guess I would say that when I was in law school, I was not thinking about money at all. And so in that moment, I think I was just thinking about survival. I think I was just thinking, how do I do this thing? What in the world should I be spending my time on day to day? Um, it was the directive in front of me was being a law student. How do I, how do I do the good law student thing? What are those actions? What is that, what does that outcome even look like? And even in law school, it felt, I know we we're talking very much about the law school experience, the legal experience being incredibly lockstep. And so in law school, there are these very clear directives of good, better, best. And so if you want to try to be the best 1L, here's what that looks like. The best 2L, here's what that looks like. The best 3L, here's what that looks like. And so that's all I was focused on. So 1L year, we're talking grades and we're talking 1L summer internship. And then 2L year, we're talking grades and maybe OCI and an extracurricular. And 3L year, we're talking um, finishing out the year, maybe, maybe doing a clinic and then, and then preparing for the bar. And so it was just a very clearly laid out path. Um, and that was the North star. And so hitting those achievements was the North star rather than any thought at all about, uh, how much are these different things paying me versus could I make that money some other way, or could I build wealth in another way? And so I think that it was, I think that it was much more, um, yeah, I think it was much more about, about the steps along the path and than literally anything else. All of us have, have such little understanding of finances and personal finance, um, early on in our lives that there were really only two directives that I had ever been given only two pieces of advice, um, that I had ever heard. And they were both from my dad and he said, max out your 401k and invest in index funds. Those were the two pieces of advice, the only thing I knew about personal finance, and I was like, great, I have my marching orders, and I did those two things. And so it's so funny when you say today because that was five years working in big law until I made that transition, and then when I made that transition, that's when I started to go off the beaten path. So like that's when I started to really have to have these conversations with myself and think about life in a more multifaceted way of like, okay, what is the new vision and what are the creative resourceful ways to get there, including with money? How am I going to spend it? How am I going to save it? How am I going to invest it? Um, what does it look like to take a loss in service to bigger growth, which is something I had never thought of before. Um, and then, and then also not only on the personal finance side, but on a business finance side of starting your own business and what does that look like? And, mm. and, and how do you incorporate things like team members and, and fixed costs? And so that was a whole nother journey that I've been on the last, uh, three and a half, four years. But on the personal finance side, I think when I started working at a law firm was the first time where I had real money. And so then I felt like I had 
options with what to do with it. But I think also this, this sense of stewardship and responsibility kicked in again, which is like, what is the best thing I could do with my money? I want to figure out what that is and, and do those steps. Yeah. And I mean, to start in big law right out of school, that's a big, that's a lot of money for someone who's in their twenties to suddenly be receiving in a paycheck, you know, and, and I mean, your dad gave you solid, really good advice. And it's great that you, you had someone there to, to give you advice. I mean, that that is such a wonderful, I want to say starting point, because a lot of people don't even know to do that. They don't know to put anything in their 401k. They, they don't know what an index fund is and the power of index funds and the simplicity of it. You know, and, and I think it takes some people a very long time to learn all of that. So you had a great starting point and that's amazing. But it's so cool to hear that, you know, as you started a business, it's like a whole other, you know, mindset right there. Um, I, when I started out of law school, I, I don't think I received any advice other than work hard and pay off your student loans, which seemed at the time extremely daunting and I didn't know how I was going to do it. Um, but I, I think something that kind of helped me and I, I don't subscribe to this notion anymore, but at the time I was very much like, I'm going to continue to let, live like a student mm. so I can pay off these loans. And I, I was very conscious, almost too conscious of avoiding lifestyle inflation, you know, coming in and just buying the new car immediately or going out to lunch every day. And now I'm much more abundant, you know, when it comes to money, but I'm also intentional. But I think it's really cool that you you had that foundation to start with. That's really, that's really, really great. What would you say the best choice you've made when it comes to money? I would say, and this was probably less of a less of a choice. Well, it was a choice. I guess it was an intentional choice, but when it came to money specifically around higher education. So I chose to go to uh, an undergrad university where I was given a full scholarship. And then I chose to go to a law school where I was also given a full scholarship. And so I came out of higher education without any student loan debt, which is an incredibly privileged place to be. And in my mind at the time, it was so ingrained in me in, in my upbringing that you need to be really fiscally responsible around money. You need to save it. You need to make sure you're not spending on, on anything frivolous, anything luxurious and just being really, really intentional because that's how my parents were raised. And, you know, my dad comes from a family of six and my mom comes from a family of nine. And so there was not a lot of extra money around. And so, because they came from that background, that's how they raised us as well. Me and my three sisters. And so when the opportunity arose to go to a university in state for a full scholarship, it was it was not even a question in my mind. I never even considered applying out of state. And then same thing for law school. It was never a question in my mind and I never even considered applying out of state. And so I think that that was sort of the driving force behind both of those higher education decisions. And there are so many other factors at play that I didn't even consider what, what city I might want to live in or what lateral opportunities I might want to have or the practice areas. I didn't, I didn't know any of that. I had no visibility into that. And so this was the default position 
emotion. But if we're talking specifically around money, that was an amazing default position to have because it opened up so much flexibility and freedom once I graduated to be able to make my career look exactly the way that I wanted. Yeah, I think I think that's a very important point because I think what happens to a lot of law students and then as they become attorneys is they, you know, maybe they have a lot of law school debt or they do find their their lifestyle really kind of creeps up, the, the cost of living creeps up and they're not really smart about it. And then what happens is you get stuck. You know, if you're in a practice area you, you don't like or if you're at a big law firm that you don't like or a boutique firm or whatever it may be that you're not enjoying, you, not to say you're stuck forever, but you definitely, you know, your options become more limited. You may not be able to pivot as quickly or change. And so I, I think that, you know, not everyone's going to come out of law school with, with no debt, although I hope, I hope many, many people do. And I think that that's a whole other like hidden, like hide the ball thing that there are these scholarship opportunities out there. And I think a lot of people don't realize it. Um, but if you, if you're not in that boat, that's okay. That's totally fine. I was kind of in like a quasi, I had a partial scholarship and I still left law school with over a hundred thousand dollars in law school debt. I'm not even sure. Like looking back, I was so unaware of my money. I don't even know how that happened because I had a 75% scholarship and somehow between my JD and my LLM in tax, which I still went to a state school. So, you know, I digress, but I think my my point here is that as you move through the law school journey, as you move into your, your lawyer journey, being intentional and smart about your money, wherever you're starting at is going to allow you to pivot and do fun things and be innovative and not feel stuck. And I know I've I've said this before on the on the podcast, but I, I worked with, you know, a lot of partners in big law who had been partners for years. So presumably they've been making a very high salary for many years, bonuses, whatever it may be. And they felt like they couldn't pivot. They felt like they couldn't do something else, even though they're, you know, high, high earners. And so it's, it's designing your money and your life intentionally and making strategic decisions along the way. It's so important. So kudos to you that you made those decisions to go to those schools even though maybe you didn't look at practice area and city, it set you up to be able to do what you wanted to do, to work with law students, to decide where you were going and not feel like you, you know, you couldn't pivot. What do you think the biggest mistake that you've made with money has been? Oh, I had a good thought on this one because I, oh, I know. Yes. Okay. So this is kind of, this is kind of a, a mini story in and of itself. Okay. So I went to law school in, in, at SMU law in Dallas, Texas. And for those of you guys who might not be familiar with Dallas, it is located in Texas, which you might assume would sort of give vibes or, or, uh, give a culture off of like friendly and down home and, and like small town values. And that's, what I was expecting very naively. And when I got to Dallas, I realized that there was a complete different value structure in place in that city that was very prevalent. And so one of the things that I've since heard about Dallas is that it's the LA of Texas. And there's this mm. mindset of the $30,000 millionaires, which is, it doesn't matter how much money you're actually making. You need to make sure that it looks like 
you are a millionaire, that you are wearing name brand clothes, that you are driving a name brand car, that you're sending your kids to the best preschools, that you're going to the best church, that all of the appearances of wealth are around you regardless of what your, what your fiscal means actually are. And this was a complete sort of shock moment for me because I had never been in a, in a culture like that before. And I started to realize that it was rubbing off on me over the three years of law school. And I remember to your question, there was this one point when I graduated law school and everybody was going out and, and buying luxury cars. That was apparently the thing that you did when you graduated law school. And I had this, I think it was a 1998 Toyota Camry or something that, that ran so poorly that anytime I went out of town, I would have to get a rental car because I was afraid that it was going to break down on the side of the road. And, but it worked for me because 98% of my driving was inside the city of Dallas. And so I never really <laughs> oh had gosh. a need, um, yeah for, for a car that, that could make a, a 15 hour road trip drive. But in the moment I got swept up and I went, I remember I went to a Lexus car dealership and I asked the guy for a test drive and I was driving it around and I don't even remember how much it cost, maybe $35,000, $50,000. I can't remember. Um, but a lot of money. And I remember telling the guy that, yeah, you know, I have a Toyota Camry and, and we've had Toyotas in my family for, for years and we love them and they work, they work great. And the guy said, oh, well, you know that Alexis is just a Camry with sort of a, a, a shiny, um, top put over it. And I remember thinking that and thinking of, well, of course it is. Of course that's what a luxury car is. And in the same moment thinking, well, yeah, but I want to buy the Lexus so that every body can see me driving a Lexus. That's the whole point. And so there was this tension in that moment where I was seriously considering making a purchase that in no way aligned with any value or interest of mine. I don't care about cars and I definitely don't care about other people seeing the car that I drive other than getting me from point A to point B. And yet I was very, very, very close to, to allowing this, this culture and, and, um, and this mindset around money in this particular city really almost drive that decision. And then I wound up moving to New York city where I didn't need a car at all. So that was such a saving grace. Um, but that was a, that was going to be the biggest mistake I think I would have made about money, not only because of allowing outside forces to sort of drive that decision for me, but also of just the investment in a brand new car and how immediately it loses value when, when it leaves the lot and, and just kind of thinking at it in terms of a wealth building mindset. So that was, that was about to be the biggest mistake I probably would have made with money. You just triggered a memory for me that I, I had actually forgotten. I, I don't remember if it was when I first got the job at Deloitte or when I went to the boutique firm in Boca. But I remember very clearly my dad and I, I, I needed a new car. My car just, it died. So there was a need for a car, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to get. Like, I'm not a huge car person. So I remember very clearly I went with my dad to the Mercedes dealership. And I think at the time, Deloitte did not pay very well. I was making like 65000 And I, I test drove this like black four-door sedan Mercedes Benz that looked like what I thought a lawyer would drive. 
like, but it looked like something that like a 70 year old man would drive. Like it was not even like a cool car, but it just, I thought that that's what a lawyer would drive. And I remember my dad being like, this is a lawyer car. Like this is a lawyer car. And I, thank goodness, I also did not buy that car. I went and I got a very nice Acura, which drove me to Miami every day, back and forth for years. I loved it. And I, I actually completely forgot about that. So that's that's really funny. I almost fell to it as, as well. And I'm really glad I did it because I wouldn't have even liked that car. Like, it didn't even make sense. Yeah. And it's also like, I've heard stories where people have bought new cars and it, and it's so meaningful to them. And it's something that they've dreamed about for years. And it's really representative of how far they've come and the work they've put in. And I think that's a really beautiful, um, expenditure of money and and sort of, um, reflection back on, on where, on, on how far you've come and, and what you've accomplished. But I think, yeah, I think the biggest piece for me was that being a, a value for me and something important to me and, and it coming, yeah, it coming internally rather than the external pressure. And I think that was the first time I had experienced anything like that before. And I think, yeah, when we, so many of us, when we start in the legal industry, those pressures kind of click on in a way that we may not have ever felt. Um, and you just see the visual of, like you said, what a lawyer is, what a lawyer drives, how a lawyer lives, the type of clothes a lawyer wears. And, and, and you're, and it, you're so surrounded by it that it can very, very easily sort of seep in, um, and cause you to make buying decisions that are n- not really your own. And so I think that, that that was something that I had to kind of extricate myself from, um, and really be able to put that filter on of, is this something that I feel like is aligned with me, even though I probably didn't have that language for it at the time, or is it something that I, that I'm doing because I think this is what lawyers do. This is such a common theme on this podcast. It's not that buying a Lexus or a Mercedes is a bad thing. It's amazing. It's amazing to be able to take money and and buy something that gets you excited. That is part of your value. It's not that it's the making decisions based on what other people will think or what you think is the right thing to do or will make you look cool. Like I drive a Lexus now, but also my husband and I only have one car because I, you know, we don't need two cars. We live in South Florida. There's Uber. He's in law enforcement. He has a work car. So we decided I, I, we have two kids. I'm a mom and I wanted a car that wasn't a mom car. For me, that was very important as, as I went into the motherhood journey, motherhood journey. I'm like, I need a car that I can still feel cool in, but that can also fit two car seats. And when we go on trips and everything, and for us, that was getting a Lexus. It's not the, the, the thing itself that is good or bad. It's the decision-making and the process that we go through and making sure that our decisions are aligned with who we want to be. I'm all for spending money. I'm all for luxury items travel, food, if that is what lights you up. If you're doing it just because you want to keep up with the Joneses, which is very easy to do. I mean, especially when I was in big law, there were a lot of people who not only were high earning, but also came from families with money. So it was very common to say, oh, yes, you know, last summer when I was in the Hamptons or, oh, you know, uh, this, this and this restaurant. And again, nothing wrong with any of those things, but I'm sitting there you know, this girl who grew up like going like Carnival Cruise line was like, that was like my Hamptons. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, yes, 
I love that restaurant in the Hamptons. It's so great. And like trying to fit in because I felt like such a fish out of water. And, you know, I think it's just so important to design the life that you want, whatever that is. There's no, there's really no limits. I, I truly believe that, but designing it to be what you want it to be, not what you think you should do. I think, I think that's really, I think that's, that's the secret right there. I completely agree. And I, I think that a lot of us find that by making mistakes and actually spending money in a way that we regret. And I, you know, the, the car was a big thing, but there have been smaller things along the way in terms of apartments or in terms of outfits or in terms of trips or that kind of thing where I realized I crossed the line once I had crossed it. And so I think that, you know, there, life is, is messy and the path is windy and twisty and all of the things. And so, um, I think the, the messaging that, that you're putting out there in terms of this podcast is really, really great and helpful because a lot of us sort of stumble and our way there and we trip and fall and, and make mistakes and have regrets. And in that process, realize that that wasn't a line, but this is, or, Oh, that's where that line was. And I know because I just crossed it. Yeah. In my, one of my last podcast episodes with uh, lawyer Britt, we were talking about how there really are no mistakes. It's just information, you know, information as you go along the journey. And usually the quote unquote mistakes are the things that we grow from the most and we learn totally. the most about life and ourselves. So I really, I appreciate you sharing all of that. What made you want to start, you know, your programs, the law school master plan now, now your program for lawyers, what, what caused that spark inside of you? So when I was, so I was a practicing lawyer for, I would say eight years. And primarily I was working in IP litigation. And then when I left big law, I thought that I wanted to do human rights work. And so I did that for about two and a half years. And I was sort of in that world and, and kind of familiarizing myself with all these different pieces and trying things and pro bono work and internships. And while I was like trying to find my way, because I, I thought that that was going to be the next thing, but I wasn't sure. And so there were a lot of unknowns or a lot of question marks. As I said, I had stepped off the, the, um, the path that I felt like had, was so clear and was so linear and so in that process, I sort of got enamored, enamored with YouTube specifically and sort of the, if anybody is a Casey Neistat fan, specifically his channel and the, and the videos that I felt that resonated most with me were with him sharing his views on life and how he had overcome obstacles and what he had learned. And so around that time, I was also, because I was considering so many different uh, possible paths and I didn't know which one was going to be the right one, one of the things I was thinking about was um, the possibility of becoming a professor. Just the thought, not taking actually any steps to do it. But I was like, oh, wouldn't it be so fun to be a law school professor? That sounds like a thing that people do and enjoy. And immediately following that thought were all the things that you hear that, that teachers um, dislike about 
the job, right? The fact that you have to teach people that don't necessarily want to be there. You have to grade exams. Uh, you have to do research that you don't necessarily want to do. You have to um, potentially live in a city you don't want to live in to go to a law school that is not your first choice law school. So you can kind of move up the ranks and eventually work in a law school in a city where you want to work. And and immediately thinking all of that, uh, I knew that I didn't want I didn't want it badly enough to go through however many years that was going to take to get to, to whatever I thought being a professor in a law school that I wanted to be at would, would look like. But the thing I could do was make videos and whoever wanted to watch them could watch them and whoever didn't, didn't have to. And so it was kind of this beautiful sort of removing of, um, the, the gatekeeping and the barriers. And I could just teach and I didn't need a certification and I didn't need a, a particular degree or, or another group of people, um, giving me the okay to do it or not. And so that was what sparked it originally. And then when I thought about, well, okay, if I, if I were going to talk about something, what would I even talk about? And immediately what came rushing to me was all of the frustrations that I had starting out as a new law student and a new lawyer and all the things they don't tell you and all the things they expect you to know, um, and imply that you should know and that you, something's wrong with you if you don't know them without ever communicating them to you. And th these gaps in knowledge were just these chips on my shoulder that I carried around for all these years. And I was, I, I just really was fired up about, about shedding light on these things and then also what to do about them. And so when the, when the videos originally started, they were primarily geared toward new lawyers. So when you're starting out at a law firm, here's all the different things you need to know. Here's what they will not tell you. Here's how to succeed. Here's how to become a go-to associate, those kind of, those kind of things. And then I realized that as I was posting these videos, a lot of people were commenting and interacting with me and asking questions. And a lot of the questions were way more general, way more high level. So it was, what is a lawyer? What is litigation? How much does a lawyer make? What does the day-to-day -day of a lawyer look like? Should I go to law school? So these more 30,000 foot view questions. And so I started making content, answering the questions that I was getting, and I realized as I was going through that, that the, at least for me, that the majority of people that I was attracting or that were interested in this type of content were people that were heading into law school and they, they didn't know what the process was going to be like, and they didn't know what to expect and they didn't know how to do well. And they heard it was hard, but they didn't know what that meant. And, and so that's how, that's how the YouTube channel got started. And that's how I started making content for, for both of these groups of people. And so that was probably that was probably a year and a half that I was creating videos um, before I was introduced to the world of coaching. And so I had no idea that coaches existed. I didn't know that that was a thing. And I remember, so funny. So I remember when I first started down this path that I literally Googled how to be a law school coach, because I just assumed that that was a thing that existed in the world. And not only was it a thing that existed in the world, but surely there was a program that taught you how to be that. So similarly to how would you be a law school professor? How would you be uh, a litigator? And I was so confused when all of the results that were coming back were things like how to find a job. So they were all like recruiting type type, um, websites. And that's when I realized, Oh, I don't know that this is actually a thing. I think this is just something that I'm hoping to be able to, 
um, to to bring in, but not something that may have been um, created beforehand. And so that's how I got. That's how I started like going down that that rabbit hole, and then and then learning about the um, the the possibility of coaching as as a way to actually serve people who might need the help. That's so cool. I am I'm a massive massive fan of coaching. I use it in all aspects of my life. I have a business coach right now. I think it is just a way to kind of link arms with somebody and make what you're whatever you're doing, law school, a new business, anything, just make it so much easier and just have someone kind of fill in the gaps and kind of say like, let me take your hand, let me show you how I did what I did. And I, I just think it's, I think it's amazing. And I think it's so cool that you saw that there was no one else doing it. And that didn't make you say, well, I guess it's not a thing. I guess it's not something that's needed instead. Cause that's what a lot of people probably would do. Instead you said, oh, wow, there's an opportunity here. There's, there's an opening in the market and a need in the market for something I'm going to go and create it. I think that's just so cool. Now, looking back, now that you've you know, done all the things, big law, now that you have this incredible program for law students and lawyers, if you could go back and tell your 1L self something, what would it be? So I love this question because there are so many things that I would tell my 1L self that I literally had to create a program around it because I had to like <laughs> download it from my brain into the world in some kind of tangible form because it was just the A to Z of, of everything, everything I wish I would have known, everything I wish I would have done, uh, everything I wish they would have told me. But I think for me, kind of coming at it from, from specifically a place around strategy is what I hear over and over, um, which is just, it's just mind blowing when you think about it, is that law school has been taught the same way for 140 years. And every year, it feels like a mystery. It feels like a mystery about what to do. It feels like a mystery about how it's taught, how it's graded, um, how to spend your time. And so the biggest, the biggest thing that I want law students to understand is law school doesn't have to be a mystery if you have a strategy. And I think for so many of us, we go into law school assuming that we should know how to do it because it's just school. It's just school. We've done school for 20 plus years and we've always done well. And so why would we think that it wouldn't go well this time? Why would we think that we would have to have a new approach? Um, and, and that if we did the same thing that we've done before, it wouldn't work in the same way. And so I think there's I think there is some naivete there about how the law school process works and functions and is, is taught and tested. And then I think there's, there's a, a complete lack of communication from the law school side about this being something new and different and hard and, and strategic in a way that you haven't had to think about before because it wasn't a zero-sum game before. And because everybody in the class could potentially get a 4.0. And because the way that the way that jobs were were handed out didn't have an overwhelming impact, um, specifically and only on grades. Um, and there were other things that you could do to to really make yourself a, a strong candidate. And you had the time. I just I, I hear so many undergrad um, students who start law school and talking about how I could I could study, I could cram for exams, I could have an internship, I could go out with friends, I could have hobbies. Like there was so, there was so much 
um, spaciousness to be able to have this full life. And in law school, especially when you're just starting out, especially that first year, all of these are new learning curves. So all of these take a lot of time. All of these take an insane amount of energy, um, and focus. And so it, I think it's just a complete paradigm shift from what we've experienced. And because that, that languaging isn't really out there, we feel like it's our fault and we must not be smart and we must not have what it takes. And, and we should have known this despite the fact that, that the powers that be or the people in positions of authority are not communicating any of this to us. And so, and so I think maybe another thing I would have told my one else self is it's not your fault. The institutions the institutions are failing you. And that's the same for the one for one else when you're just starting out as a first year associate when you're just starting out. You assume you're going to walk into this law firm and law school didn't teach you how to be a lawyer. So I assume you guys are going to train me. And then and then there's all these expectations of perfection, of already knowing what to do without any training or resources or communication happening. And and just and it's so and it's so prevalent. And then it's, we assume that we probably shouldn't be lawyers or we can't hack it or we deserve to be fired or uh, maybe this was a big mistake. And so, and so I, I think that that would probably be it is, is communicating, communicating to my one else self um, that, that you are going to have a lot of struggles along this path to becoming a lawyer and, and it's not your fault. Now you can absolutely go and find resources and, and seek out help, but it should be much more prevalent and it should be much more accessible and, and they should be the ones coming to you to tell you what you need, not you having to stumble and, and, and search and, and throw spaghetti at the wall and, and then have this, these intense emotions of imposter syndrome because you feel like you did something wrong. Yeah, that, that was so powerful. And I think that piece and this conversation as a whole is going to just help so many people feel like they're not alone and that they now have steps that they can take to, you know, to really find success and whatever that means for them, their own success, you know, on their, their, their law school journey as they, and as they move into their, their law career, tell the listeners, Angela, where can everyone find out more about you? Yeah. So I think the, probably the easiest place to go is just my website, AngelaVorpal.com. And then if you guys have any questions or, or follow up around this conversation, you can always send me a DM on Instagram. It's just at Angela Vorpal. Oh my gosh. I think you're going to be getting a lot of DMs. <laughs> so get ready. <laughs> oh, thank you so, so much, Angela. I know this is going to be a really, really good episode that people are going to go back to and re-listen and just use as a resource as as they go along their journey so they can really feel like they're, they truly are not alone and that they can take the right steps. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for all your insight and your wisdom and your energy in this episode. I appreciate it so, so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren.